We're going to pick up from Mark chapter 6, verse 45. If you don't own a Bible or don't have one with you, you're very welcome to go grab one from um, the back corner there from the table. And if you do not own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that, um, take it home with you, make it your own. Let's read from Mark 6, verse 45. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And when he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let me pray. Father, we are very conscious that the the great aim of the Christian life is to know your son better. Lord, as we as we contemplate his reality, as we contemplate the revelation of Christ that's come to us through um, the gospels, we pray, Father, that you will breathe your spirit upon us, give us wisdom, give us insight, give us the ability to comprehend and understand. And come and minister to our hearts as well, Lord, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. I pray, come and minister your grace and your presence and your power to bring about peace, to bring about comfort, to bring about faith, to bring about renewed certainty of your goodness and of what you mean to do in and through us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What is Christ's Uh, purpose for you if you're a Christian? I think the answer is not merely that Jesus wants to bring you into his family and save you, as wonderful as that is. It's not the case that he simply rescues you to use a Christian understanding of what it means to become a Christian, that he then brands you and then he lets you loose, like, to go and do your own thing. But neither is it the case that some people imagine the Christian life is to come and enter into something Um, heavy and structured and institutionalized. It's just all about following rules and regulations. I think that if you want to answer the question of what Jesus wants for you and what his purpose is in saving you, it has much more to do uh, with the life that he promises on this side of being in his family, of his intentions to use you, of his desire to give you what he describes as abundant life in John's Gospel. A life that's full, a life that's full of joy, and a life that is infused with purpose. A life that has meaning, a life that's lived in the light of eternity, and a life that is, is, is lived in service to the Father who loves us. And uh, it's essentially what I'm trying to describe to you, of course, is what it means to be a disciple. The Gospels put before us the master-discipleship relationship. They show us how... Uh, The Lord has brought us from being just pure raw materials 
and into a relationship with him in which he forms and molds and shapes his people. And what this is, by the way, an explainer for what you are going through, what you are experiencing in your relationship with God, because he has purposes to work in your life. Christ himself is the model. He's the pattern. I think about verses like these just impress themselves upon me time and time again in terms of the life, a life lived in abandoned service to the Father. He says things like this in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. He's the perfect son. He says elsewhere, truly, truly, I say to you, the son, speaking of himself, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. There was no hint of rebellion in Christ's heart, but only a desire to pursue and and follow the leading of the Father, offering his life down consistently. So there he is. He's the master. He shows us the kind of life that he's calling you to. But in order to take you from being raw, unformed material to that life of discipleship, what the Gospels show us is that he has his methods and his means of transforming our lives. That he puts you into his school of discipleship, as we see him doing with these men. And, and so you can understand each of the episodes that the men go through and what they walk through in these few years as being ways of Christ molding and shaping their understanding and their lives and their hearts so that they will also walk in the same faith in what he has modeled to them. And my question as we're opening up this passage today is, well, how does he mold us? What is his primary means of shaping us, shaping our minds, our desires, our wills, forming our characters in order to make us more useful in his kingdom? And here's one of the answers that I think the gospels show us and what I want us to dwell on this evening. I think one of the ways that Christ forms us is through successive exposure to trials and often trials of increasing intensity. You're like, great, fantastic, wow. <laughs> I'll give you an example um, just from our own personal lives, or a couple of examples. There's, my son had, uh, had an, a somewhat irrational fear of water, of swimming. I think it might have been to do with the time he nearly drowned, but apart from that, <laughs> he had a somewhat irrational fear of swimming. And so um, a couple of years ago, my wife made, made it an aim to get him in the pool and get him into lessons. So she would take him, for the first few weeks, she took him to uh, the swimming over at Elephant and Castle, the pool there. He was having lessons. And um, unbeknownst to me, she was having a difficult time. And uh, she, she tricked me. She said to me, Andrew, um, this is going to be great bonding time for you and Seth. Why, why don't you make it a thing in your week that you always take him to swimming? And of course, I can't, I can't tell you how frustrating this was in the early days. I mean, it began an hour before we left the house. He'd be whining, he'd be complaining, he'd be grumpy. And eventually I'd coax him into leaving the house. But then I'd, I'd practically have to drag him all the way there. Then we'd get to the swimming pool, we'd have a challenge getting changed. And then he'd get towards into the pool, he'd be crying with the teacher. And then he'd, you know, every, every little step along the way was difficult putting his feet in the water, later putting his face in the water, jumping in, everything, all of it. I don't know if he was having flashbacks or what was happening, but it was hard work. But what we discovered, of course, was that through perseverance and this repeated exposure to something he found deeply uncomfortable, he now loves it. I mean, he he looks forward to it. 
And it's, it's, it's full of joy for him now. And I just think, well, his life, all new possibilities of swimming have been opened up to him, right? Which is an important part of your life. So there's one example. Let's say, let's say you wanted to, um, let's say you want to you get stronger. You want to improve your physical strength. How do you do that? You might set various goals. Let's say you have an aim. You want to lift, um, you want to do a 200 kilogram deadlift. Uh, what do you do? How do you get to that? The answer is through programming, through successive addition of weight week after week after week until you go from 60, 70 kgs all the way through to, to 200. It can be done. Just look at Tom Wheatley. This man is absolute beast, freak of nature. So this is what we see Christ doing. These disciples, just in this very chapter, have been out preaching the gospel from town to town in pairs. Then they've been charged by Jesus, feed, feed the 5,000. Of course, the first thing they succeeded in, the second they failed in. But all of it was giving them trials that were preparing them for what they would later be doing. The next time we see them uh, uh, in charge of 5,000 plus people is in Acts chapter 4, and it's the Jerusalem church who they have to feed with the gospel. So each of these experiences they go through in the gospels is preparing them for greater things. And I, I want to suggest that's the pattern of the Christian life. What then does this incident have to do with all that? Them being cast out onto the sea, Jesus basically forces them out across the lake and then abandons them. And he goes off on his own. What's he doing? What's going on in this story? I think it was captured really well by my, uh, Matthew Henry, his, his commentary that he wrote back in the 1600s. He often has such brilliant insights. And here's how, how he describes what's happening here. He says, this was a specimen of the hardships they were to expect when hereafter he should send them abroad to preach the gospel. So this experience of being alone on the lake in a, in a windstorm, buffeted, uh, feeling like they can't get anywhere, and Jesus not being with them. He says all of that was to prepare them for preaching the gospel. He said it would be like sending them to sea at this time with the wind in their teeth. They must expect to toil in rowing. They must work hard to strive against so strong a stream. They must likewise expect to be tossed with waves, to be persecuted by their enemies. And by exposing them now, he intended to train them up for such difficulties that they might Learn to endure hardness. Jesus one day was going to thrust these men into the worst of circumstances. Brought before councils and on trial. Nearly all of them were executed. And prior to that, lived lives of hardship and suffering for the cause of Christ. How does Jesus turn them from being softies into hardened disciples? And the answer is obvious. He puts them through successive trials in the Gospels. And this is one of them. Now, the reason I'm stressing all that for you, because I think Jesus is doing the same thing in your lives. All of us face trials of various kinds. We face the stresses of daily life that, that expose whether we trust in the Father over us. We face temptations some of which seem to grab you by the throat and be impossible to overcome. You face anxieties and you face suffering. Just in late, late last night, I received a, a text from a friend in the States, an old friend of mine, who told me that this week his mother had been diagnosed with pancreatic and liver can cancer 
and that her mum had passed away that same week. And you think, why? What does such acute suffering mean? Why does Jesus allow us to go through all kinds of trials and frustrations in life? And listen, friends, in this story, I think we see some of the patterns of what Jesus wants to show you when you're going through those things. I want to show you three things that come out from this, this narrative. Here's the first. Jesus is praying for you. Any kind of trial you face in life is going to feel much, much worse when you feel alone in that trial. When you feel isolated, you're likely to slip into self-pity. And through observation of my own life and pastoral conversations with many people, I think self-pity is at the root of a lot of sin in our lives. When we go, get into self-pity, we forget that God is good, and then we do all kinds of crazy things. We begin to question Ask the questions about the goodness of God, about his love for us, about his nearness to us. And at first glance, when you're reading this story, it looks like Jesus has just utterly abandoned them. It says that after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. They're out on the, the storm on the waters. He's up on the mountain to pray. But what you begin to realize, of course, is that he is very mindful of those same men. He can see them, after all. I've visited the hills around the Sea of Galilee. You can, from many points all the way around, you can see the entirety of the Great Lake. You can see boats in the middle of it. And Jesus is high up, no doubt on a bright night, moonlit light. He is looking down upon the very men who he loves, who he's shaping, who he's forming. And what's he doing? He's praying for them. He is praying for them. Now, I want to come back to this in a moment, but I just wanted to take a brief detour just to think again about the, the prayer life of Jesus because I just find endless encouragement from this. Think about some of the characteristics of Christ's prayer life. Let me show you a few things that just jumped to me from reading this account. First of all, Jesus emphasized the importance of solitude in prayer. Jesus prayed with others at times, but he also sought perfect solitude at times in order to pray. Sometimes you wonder, why is it that my prayer life is no good? And the, the reality is because you never find time that's utterly alone. And whatever alone time you have is invaded by the computer in your pocket. He found solitude. Another thing he did was he, he liked to be out in nature. Now, Jesus taught in Matthew 6, uh, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who's in secret. So I don't think this is in any way his sole pattern of praying. But sometimes it seems Jesus... Just love to be out alone in nature. There are a number of times we find him either in a wilderness or on a mountain, on his own, with the Father. That's depressing because we live in the heart of a great big city, isn't it? But there is there's something wonderful, isn't there, about, about taking deliberate effort to go and seek God in places where you know you can connect with him. Another thing that strikes me about his prayer life is how spontaneous it is. Jesus would have been raised with patterns of prayer in his daily life because of the structures of worship that existed in Judaism at the time. No doubt he had set times of prayer throughout the day that he would have followed and joined in with. We know he was engaged with Sabbath synagogue worship. But for all the structure that would have existed in his prayer life, he was also responsive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
I remember reading Martin Lloyd-Jones say on this. He said, you should respond to every impulse to pray. Respond to every impulse to pray. Because he's saying, look, the desire to pray is not a natural desire. So when you feel an impulse to pray, that is the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. Obey. Let there be structure and spontaneity in your prayer life. Another thing you notice about it is he prayed in order to find rest. It's amazing when you read these, these chapters that we've been reading all the way through from, from chapter 1 to now. There is barely a gap, it seems, in their schedule as they go from one crowd to another crowd to another confrontation to a miracle to the feeding of the 5,000. And then finally, <sighs> he's on his own. And what does he want to do when he's on his own? He wants to go and be with the Father. Another observation about his prayer life is just the length of time he spent in prayer on this occasion. Now, this is not something you should ever feel condemned about. In, in Matthew 6, when Jesus is teaching us on prayer, he taught the importance of, of direct, uh, I think, um, prayers with few words. He said, don't babble like the pagans. God understands you just as well with a single sentence as by a whole paragraph of of waffle. But there are times when you need to pray intently and for great lengths. And on this occasion, Jesus left his disciples at dusk, so about 6 p.m., and then he came to them again between 3 and 6 in the morning, the fourth watch of the night, So he was praying, it seems, for between 9 and 12 hours on this particular occasion. I find that wonderfully encouraging. Not because I can do that, but because he is the Son of God. The one who formed the universe by his word. Demonstrating what a life of dependence looks like. And if he lived this way, how much more do you and I need to live like this? Let it be a challenge and an encouragement to you. So we find him in prayer. But here's my point. On this occasion, I believe that Jesus is showing us that he prays for us. He finds a high place like Moses when he's interceding for Israel with, the, with, with God. Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray and he, is, he has the disciples in his eyes down upon the lake. And what the, the Bible shows us it, wonderfully We have one of these prayers recorded for us in John 17. One of the prayers that he prayed for his disciples for us. What did Jesus pray for when he prayed for us? Let me read you a few bits from that. He said, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. They are yours, he says to the Father. In other words, he has you in his mind as he prays for you. And he asks things like this. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. It's the greatest sadness when we see people struggling and in danger of going astray. But it is the greatest comfort to me as a pastor to know that Jesus is not only praying for me, but he's praying for all of you as well. Father, keep them. Keep them. Are you in danger of walking away? Are you in danger of throwing it in? Are you doubting the goodness of God? Jesus is praying for you and he's praying, Father, keep them in your name. 
He prays this, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. For some people, the Christian life is not a happy life. But the Bible shows us that the Christian life should be infused with the joy that God himself enjoys. God is a happy God. And he wants you to experience that joy. Jesus was happy. I have no doubt about that fact. I know there were things that grieved him. He wept, didn't he, when he saw Jerusalem resisting God and resisting the word of God. But he is a happy savior. And he speaks here of the joy that he has, wanting that joy to be fulfilled in you. He's praying that you'll not only be kept in, Christ, in God's name, but also that you'll experience the abundance and the happiness of what it means to be a child of God. He prays also like this. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In other words, he's not like one of those helicopter parents who, who runs around just protecting their children from every bump and scratch. You know, they're approaching a step. We better pull them back or any of these kinds of things. No, he's willing to let you be exposed to dangers in life, but he's praying for you to be kept strong in the face of danger. He asks, sanctify them in the truth. You think, wow, there's so much evil in my heart. Jesus is praying for your growing purity, your holiness, as the word of God shapes and fashions and sometimes beats you into shape. And our Savior is there, pleading to the Father on your behalf. Form him, form her, sanctify him, sanctify her. He's praying for you. Doesn't that comfort you? Isn't that extraordinary to think of that? In Romans 8, it talks again a little bit, a little bit about this. It says um, that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He said the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I find that a huge comfort because my prayer life is inadequate. There's no doubt about that. And I'm sure you'd all say the same thing is true. But thankfully, we have a tireless intercessor in the Holy Spirit who is praying with deep groans for you. It says a bit further in that chapter that Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, pleading on your behalf. Jesus is praying for you. You might feel alone, like the disciples may have felt alone that day. Wind swept, buffeted, battered, exhausted. And I know that life often feels like that. But Jesus has his gaze upon you. He's praying for you. Here's another thing that we learn from this story. Jesus is revealing himself to you. See, the great question that people wrestle with whenever they experience any kind of frustration that verges on suffering or is unbearable at times is why does God allow me to experience what I'm going through? And the answer is that your knowledge of him will get deeper. And I know that, I know that to say such a thing can sound like a platitude, can't it? It can sound like one of those flowery quotes that appears on Instagram. 
And I appreciate that if you're feeling, if you're feeling abandoned, then it, it, can, it can feel a little comfort to know, oh, God wants me to know him better. That's why I'm going through all of this. But consider, consider this, the situation of these disciples. What they are going through on this particular occasion is nothing compared to what Jesus was calling them to. The great storms that they would be facing in life in the years to come. And how they would win crowns of glory through their service and obedience to the Father in laying down their lives for the cause of the gospel. Don't you aspire to be such a person? The question is, how do we become like that? And I think the answer is all about your knowledge of God. That those who truly know God, know Christ, who are captivated by him, who are obsessed even with him, live lives of greater abandon and service toward him. Because to know him is to love him. Because he is adorable. He is worthy of adoration. And there are beautiful ways that Jesus begins to show himself in this amazing story. Let me show you some of the things that we could easily miss. Throughout the Old Testament, and remember these men were raised reading their Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. There are many passages that speak about God walking on the waters. Let me read you one from the end of Psalm 77. It says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. So when they see Jesus walking on the waters, I'm not sure they actually got it on this occasion. They think he's a ghost. But years of reflection later on, when Mark's gospel comes to be written, suddenly, oh, duh, that's what we were meant to see. Jesus, the Son of God. Here's another thing you, you, you easily miss in this story. It tells us, and the way Mark puts it, is that as he, as he was walking on the waters, it says in verse uh, 48, he meant to pass by them. Now, those are, it's a very significant phrase. I'll tell you why. There's a couple of very important stories in the Old Testament that speak about God, the God who passes by. One of them is when um, Moses is pleading with God. Uh, before, in the, in the wilderness, he's pleading with God not to abandon them. Saying, you must go with us. Your presence must go with us as a people. And as God is, is responding to Moses in Exodus 33, he says, my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. And as a kind of confirmation of God's goodwill and intention towards the people of Israel, this is what God does next. It says, Moses prays, please show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And it says... And God put him, it says, in a place uh, with a rock. And he kind of put his hand over Moses' face so that he wouldn't die in seeing him. I cover you with my hand, he says, until I pass by. Now, for us who are often have sketchy knowledge at best of, of the scriptures, this, uh, these things are easy to miss. But for these men who knew the way God worked, they knew these stories. As Jesus is about to pass them by, the resonances are meant to, to affect them deeply. This is the God of glory revealing himself to us. There's another story. It happens again in 1 Kings 19. 
Elijah, the great prophet, has been up in the great contest on Mount Carmel, which is, Carmel, which is where there are 400 prophets of Baal praying all day long for their, their false god to anoint their altar with fire. And then Elijah prays to the true god. After he's covered the altar with water, he prays to the true god. And the fire falls down. And the, the extraordinary thing about that story to me is actually what Elijah does next. Because he sinks into a pit of utter depression. He's, he, he's absolutely, he feels isolated. He feels despairing. And he runs off into the wilderness to hide because he's being pursued by the Queen Jezebel. An angel comes to him, bakes him a cake, which I know always makes everything feel better. (laughs) And uh, it's the greatest comfort that God's given us in life, right? Cake. And so he bakes him a cake, and then something else happens. Again, this is just like the story with Moses. God wants to say, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. So how does God speak to Elijah on this occasion? He says, go and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. What I'm trying to say to you, friends, I think, is this, in this story in Mark's gospel, not only is Jesus showing us that he's praying for us, but he's also showing us that when we're in the midst of the storm, Christ desires above all that you know him more deeply. This is the moment he chooses to unveil more of his nature to these men. And the clincher, of course, is when he calls out to them. They think he's a ghost, and he calls out and says, Take heart, it is I. Two words in the Greek, ego eimi, I am. It's the very words that God used when he spoke to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. Of course, they're a bit slow of heart. They don't quite get it even after all these things. But in that, in that sense, I think it's much more relatable because they're just like us, right? Think of, think of this for a second. Did you arrive as a squalling newborn into the Christian life, fully able to trust in the God that you know completely? Well, let me ask it more specifically. Have you always felt peace in the sense that God is absolutely in control in your circumstances? Are you unflappable, in other words? Have you always felt certain that he's working everything together for the good of those who love him and accord according to his purpose, which Paul tells us in Romans 8. Is that your deepest certainty when you're suffering and struggling in life? Or here's another question I could ask. Have you always been brave in the face of trying and anxious circumstances? Are you absolutely courageous because you know who God is? Let me ask you this. Have you always obeyed straight away? Not doubting that God is good. In other words, do you have the perfect faith that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has and demonstrated to us? And of course, the answer is no, 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 right? To all the questions. This is why God puts you in circumstances like this. One of the things you see in the Bible is that very often it's only in the hard times that your knowledge of God is stretched and built out. And we've seen this even in the Gospels. 
Jesus is unveiled as he's confronted with unbelievable suffering. A demonized kid who falls into the open fire. A woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. A girl who's on her deathbed. It's when, when, when people are in the deepest, darkest trials that we see more glimpses of who Jesus is. And the same is true for you, friend. Jesus comes to show himself to you like the one this moment when he walked on the water when you're in the hard times in life. Here's the last thing I want to show you. Jesus is with you in the sense that he is in the boat with you. I think this gets right to the heart of what makes Christianity, Christianity so beautiful, so unique. Because, listen, Christianity is, is, is absolutely one of a kind in this sense. Because most, most religions offer you one of two alternatives. Either you have a God who is transcendent, in the sense that he is far above you, in holiness, in perfection, but also in distance, in being unknowable. And you can think of religions that have a God of that kind. Or God, there are many gods, and they're near to us and like us and probably flawed and limited in their power and ability, but they're close, they're imminent. But the Bible's unique in showing us how God is both transcendent, he's far above us, he's holy in his greatness, but also how he comes near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's intimate with our humanity, with our suffering, with what obedience is, with what temptation feels like. And in a sense, this whole picture of these men on the sea is a picture of the gospel. We're like those men, aren't we? Out on the beaten waves, rowing and sweating but making no progress. That's what it's like to live life without Christ. Feels futile. Whatever efforts you make to please God really get you nowhere. And then Christ comes near, he comes close, and he steps into the boat with him. And as he does so, the winds cease. In one of the Gospels, it seems as though they made some kind of rapid transportation to their destination at this point. It's like Christ is the answer, simple as that. And friend, what we have there is the pattern of, of, of why you believe and why you continue to believe in Jesus through all the circumstances that you face. Because here's how you can reason it out. If the Father loves us enough to give the Son to draw near to us and be intimate with us in the worst trial of life, which is the prospect of facing the Father's own wrath and anger against our sin and judgment. When he gave Christ and he bore our sin upon himself on the cross, God solved the biggest problem. He came to be with you in that suffering, in that circumstance. And how much more is he with you in the minor things, the relatively minor things, the momentary troubles, as Paul calls them, that we experience and we face on a day-to-day life. What I'm trying to help you to see is that Jesus wanted these men to know, he wanted to print it on their minds that he is with them and he is with you. And it's right there in his name. You remember how 
right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, in the promise of this coming Savior. What is the name that's given to Jesus? It's the name Emmanuel. God, the one over us, with us. God with us. This is one of the great promises that Christ makes. I'll show you another passage where he, he reiterates this forcefully. In John chapter 14, he's talking to his disciples on the edge of his departure. Shortly before he'll suffer and die and be raised and, and be gone physically from this world. And what does he want them to know above all? He wants them to know that he's going to be with them. He puts it like this. He says, I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. He's speaking of the, the gift of his spirit, the gift of the spirit of Jesus to be with you, intimately with you, living in you. He puts it like this. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Which means, friend, that whatever you're going through, Christ is right next to you. And he's giving you the resources to weather this, to get through this, and to overcome this. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Jesus is with you. I'm not sure the disciples fully grasped this. It tells us at the end of this passage that he, as he got into the boat with them, the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened. Even at this stage, and as I said, I take comfort from this because they're slow to grasp things. I think this explains why you know, we, we often fail the trials that God allows us to experience. We're slow also, but beware of that sclerosis, of that hardening of, of the heart spiritually that tips into cynicism, that tips into the dangerous form of doubt which drives you away from God and also, also into self-pity. Be conscious of those dangers because Christ wants you to come through triumphant. More than conquerors, Paul puts it in Romans 8. That's what he wants for you. Now some of you I know are not Christian. And it may be the case that you, you identify with that sense of isolation through pain that I've been describing. And I want to encourage you, friend, that Jesus wants to be a friend to you. He wants to be a friend to you. He wants you to know him intimately and to know that he is by your side. There is nothing more precious than upon walking and stepping into the Christian life and then knowing that Jesus is with you no matter what. If you, need to, if you need to know him, you need to experience that for the first time, I want to encourage you to call out to him today. I want to encourage you to call on him to be your savior. But it may, I, I suspect that for most of us, you know, we're, we're wanting to walk with God. We're Christians but what you are facing sometimes is frustrations and, and setbacks and the squall on the lake that is disheartening. And I just want to pray for you now as we, as we close and move into a time of worship. I want to pray that God's going to minister his spirit to you in a fresh way this evening. I want to encourage you as well that as we worship, maybe, 
Maybe some of you will feel like God's stirring up words, or prophecies, or scriptures that you want to share. You know, this is how God ministers to people. It's amazing how someone has a word or a prophecy, and someone else over there suddenly feels that God loves them in a way like they hadn't grasped. I want to encourage you, if you feel God's prompting you, share it. Let me just call on God's Spirit to come and move nearer to us in the things that we are facing now as we prepare to worship. Lord Jesus, there is both an attraction and a repulsion from the reality of discipleship. I know speaking for all of us, there's a sense in which we're drawn to a life of purpose, we're drawn to a life of service, we're drawn to obedience, we're drawn to offering our lives to you completely, to modeling ourselves upon you as the master. But at the same time, Lord, we don't, we don't enjoy the trials. And sometimes we get petulant, throw our toys out the pram, sink into spiraling pits of self-pity and doubt. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will bring comfort now. The reassurance of knowing that you're praying for us. The wonder of a deepening knowledge of you. And the intimacy of having you with us in this trial. Give us perseverance. Give us Holy Spirit boldness and strength. life is smooth sailing right now prepare us for the next storm and teach us to worship teach us to worship through everything, through every circumstance because you are worthy oh Lord you're worthy you're worthy